Detroit, Michigan, USA, the motor industry capital of the world, and this weekend, the Grand Prix motor racing capital of the world. Alain Prost has ended up once again on pole position. Andrea de Cesaris alongside him, row two. Keke Rosberg in the Williams and Didier Peroni in the Ferrari. Then we've got Manfred Winkelhock in the ATS and Bruno Giacomelli in the other Alfa Romeo on row three. John Watson is back on row nine with the second McLaren. There's the green light and Prost moves away but Rosberg coming up on the inside. Chiva crosses uh, behind them but it's Prost and the power of the turbo runner which goes ahead and it's De Cesaris routing uh, the green and white Williams of Rosberg. De Cesaris goes through into second place. Prost is the leader. Kenki Rosberg fights back. Can't make it as they go into the right-hander. Prost De Cesaris, Rosberg, Peroni, Nigel Mansell in the Lotus, then it's Giacomelli and Eddie Cheever who made a magnificent start shopping right across the grid. That's Finkelhock, Finkelhock in the tyres, starting from the fifth position on the grid on the third row. That was his great opportunity to show well for ATS. Finkelhock is out and still cross the leader to Cesaris in second place but Rosberg's challenging Rosberg goes through to Cesaris falling back to Cesaris slowing and Rosberg goes through in second place and I think to Cesaris is coming into the pits so Peroni now is third Mansell is fourth Giacomelli is fifth and Andrea to Cesaris comes into the pits very clearly with a problem <laughs> Patrese in the tyres. Riccardo Patrese, the Monte Carlo winner, is off the road. That is Roberto Guerrero, whom he seems to have hit, and they're stopping the race. That's the red flag. So the race is being stopped. But now, after an hour's delay, Alain Prost uh, still on pole position, but Rosberg, of course, moving up alongside him. Peroni and Mansell on the second row. Then we've got Giacomelli and Chiva. And what is going to happen is that the first six laps remain. We're now going to have the rest of the race. And at the end, the elapsed times of the two races will be added together. So the first six laps very much count. We've now got, as it were, a second heat in the Detroit Grand Prix. Wait for the red light, then the green light. They're away. Peroni makes a good start, but Rosberg is alongside. Peroni comes through. Rosberg is alongside the Renault as they go away into the left-hander. The Renault has the inside line. The Renault has the lead. Rosberg tucked up behind in the Williams. Third is Peroni. Fourth is, Ro is uh, Giacomelli now. Giacomelli is fourth. Cheever is fifth. Mansell is sixth. But Frost once again is the leader. And this is the first lap of the restart, but it's lap seven overall. And there we see the leaders once more, and goodness me, Keki Rosberg is a lot closer now. Keki Rosberg a lot closer. And Rosberg's going through! Rosberg's on the outside, he must hit the wall! He doesn't! Now that's an amazing move, and I think that Prost had a problem. I wonder if Prost missed a gear because Rosberg went all the way around the outside of him and now Rosberg is pulling away, pulling away markedly. 
and then you saw briefly the third place battle, there it is, still Peroni, Giacomelli, Shiva and Lauda, still that marvellous four-car battle, and all of them now closing, closing on the Renault. Giacomelli so nearly lost it then and that's what Shiva was waiting for Shiva goes through a little mistake from Giacomelli he controlled it beautifully I'm surprised that he didn't go into the wall the back of the car got right away from him and Shiva took his opportunity which you have to do on a circuit like this Shiva darted through and Lauda's going through locking up his front wheel Lauda is through and it's now a six car battle for second place Frost, Peroni, Shiva, Lauda, Giacomelli and John Watson he's up to that queue now and Lauda goes through Shiva has gone through the Renault slipping back all the time Frost slipping back in fact they're all passing Frost Peroni of course has gone through behind the leader Keki Rosberg is Didier Peroni now in second place Watson is in the points, Watson the Belgian Grand Prix leader and let's remember that John Watson, Giacomelli is, Giacomelli is passed by Watson, Watson charging up, Watson takes a place from Giacomelli to go into fifth place. A little nudge from Watson there and Watson had a twitch, Watson made a small mistake and Giacomelli is coming alongside, this is Giacomelli and Watson but Giacomelli can't do it, magnificent stuff here and Giacomelli tries again and Giacomelli hits the back of Watson, Giacomelli into the fences and Bruno Giacomelli in the Alfa Romeo out of the race. There's Prost, there is Prost in the pits and finally Prost is in the pits and Watson's coming through, Watson's past Lauda. Watson goes straight past Lauda on the inside under braking for turn one. John Watson, who's come up from 17th place, goes confidently past his teammate Nicky Lauda and into fourth place. Watson's having a go at Chiba, Watson's through! Watson goes through on the inside of Chiva for another left-hander, a superb move, and Chiva, nothing he could do about it, Watson was there under braking, and he's going to do it, he's going to do it to the Ferrari, three of them passed by John Watson in one lap, this is lap 33, and still Keki Rosberg out in front, but Watson clearly now the fastest man on the circuit, and Watson is closing all the time on the leader Rosberg. The overall positions still show him, however, in fifth place because Watson was thrown back in 13th place when the race was stopped after six laps. And Lauda's going through on Chiba as well. Lauda goes through just as Watson did. And Lauda now crawling all over the back of Peroni's Ferrari. A little twitch there from Lauda. Chiva watching and that's coming up that's Jacques Lafitte and Lauda goes through Lauda is past Peroni and now Chiva wants to do the same but Nicky Lauda is past the Ferrari into third place and Lauda pulling away and Chiva's going through and Chiva does it and Peroni has to give best a charge up the inside from the American Eddie Chiva
And now we see Watson. That's Watson taking the lead on the road. Watson has gone ahead of Keke Rosberg on the road. And that surely means that with the pace that Watson is putting up, Watson now must surely get into the lead overall before long. John Watson, the leader on the road. That's louder off. That's Nicky Louder off. And Louder has damage, we think, to one of the front wheels of the car, the front right-hand wheel. After 40 laps, John Watson is only 11 seconds behind this man, Keki Rosberg, who himself has now fallen back into the clutches of Eddie Cheever. And Cheever's going to go through. And there you see it, a 9.8 second lead for Watson. And Cheever now is in second place as Rosberg falls back. And that's a lot of problems there for the feet. We noticed that a lap or so ago, the feet clouted the back of, we think, Didier Peroni in his efforts to get by. He was, he's been carrying on at unabated uh, pace, but now the feet is falling back. But that's Eddie Cheever, the American. Cheever now in a magnificent second place. Watson once more down out of the tunnel onto the waterfront through the chicane before the start finish line and the man is there with a checkered flag that is the finish john watson wins the fourth grand prix of his career and john watson goes into the lead in the world championship eddie cheever comes up to finish second with us this evening and for those online you're very welcome to be with us um, I won't share the conversations that we were having about that race just then I'll leave that to Simon but he did say at one point he thought he was Murray Walker <laughs> don't mind me saying um, you realise we're not back to 100% of where we were 18 months ago but we're getting there uh, thanks for your understanding um, both the food and bar will be back with us for our September 16th talk, so uh, you'll be able to cure at the bar and moan at me again. <laughs> so our guest this evening, it's our second time lucky in getting uh, John here. Now everyone tells me you should never work with your heroes, uh, but I'm about to dispose that myth. Will you please welcome John Watson and Simon Taylor. <laughs> Absolutely no runoff areas anywhere. 
And that was the race where John went from 17th place to the lead. I know some of us criticised Bob in Formula 1 for say, by saying that you don't see any overtaking anymore. You certainly saw overtaking in that race. Um, it was, as I say, one of the races that remains with me. Now, when enthusiasts and anoraks gather to discuss British Formula 1 greats of the 1970s and 1980s, they talk about Jackie Stewart, they talk about James Hunt, they talk inevitably about Nigel Mansell. But too often, they forget the man who's up here with me on the stage. Now, he was Britain's top Formula One driver for six seasons. He started 152 Grand Prix. He came very close to winning the World Championship that year, beating both Nicky Lauder and Alan Prost. And there is another back-to-front victory, which we can talk about later. So, welcome to you, John. Thank you for making the trek from Oxford. Um, yes, so your racing career covered, I think, 25 years. You were in Formula One for over 10 years. You had a distinguished sports car career with Porsche and Jaguar. And there are so many stories that we could tease out of you that we could be sitting here all night. We've got, the way we're going to try and do it is have about an hour of us talking, and that will, I hope, leave about half an hour for all of you in the audience to come up with some rude questions to ask John. Uh, now, we'll go quite quickly over the earliest part of your career. You started club racing in Ireland. You then went to Formula 2. And I must mention here, I was a young journalist. Um, John is two years younger than me, and I was a young sprog on autosport. And they didn't give me Grand Prix to cover, but they gave me Formula 2 races to cover. And in those days, Formula 2 was incredibly competitive because Formula 1 drivers did Formula 2 as well. They would do a Grand Prix every fortnight. And in the intervening weekend, there was usually somewhere in Europe a Formula 2 race. So you would get Jim Clark and Jackie Stewart and Piers Courage and all the other top Formula 1 drivers Bruce McLaren, coming and doing F2. And I remember going to Easter Monday Thruxton, and it would have been in 1967? No. 69, right. Um, and there was this shy young Irishman that nobody actually knew anything about. There were the greats of uh, Formula, particularly Jochen Rint, who was the king of Formula 2. And there was this shy Irishman talking to nobody. He had a big beard which was quite rare in the 60s, lots of people had beards now, but uh, he had a big beard. He was wearing a Trilby hat, I remember, as well, which was slightly curious. Anyway, this man, I think you started pretty low on the grid. You were driving a second-hand Lotus, which was probably three years old by then. You started 20th, I've just seen it in my notes, and you got up to fifth place among Rint and Stewart and Courage and Co. Got up to fifth place before, sadly, you went off the road. Yeah. So let's start with that. I mean, you, you arrived a complete unknown. Was that an important day in your career? I mean, in essence, yes, it was because it, it, it if you like, cemented the dream that I had as a you know, growing up in Northern Ireland, racing in, in what was very much club racing. But as a child, I had a dream. Uh, my father had raced 
and uh, I wanted to become a Grand Prix driver. And the only way I could become a Grand Prix driver, I suppose, was a child and a teenager was just to dream about it. And the opportunity to race at Thruxton that particular weekend came about a fellow racing driver in Northern Ireland called Jerry Penane. And Jerry had had a close connection to Lotus. He had a, a fondness for Lotus. And he bought the two remaining Lotus 48 Formula 2 cars. The car that's best known because that was the car that Jim Clark, or one of the three cars, that Jim Clark lost his life in in 1968. So the car had a reputation, which was an unfair reputation. And anyway, we rocked up uh, to Thruxton. Uh, Jerry, two Lotus 48s, one for me, one for a fellow Irish driver, John Pollock. And it was an adventure, basically. And no one anticipated what maybe would have happened on, on the Sunday. But as it turns out, uh, and it was also, I think, in those days you got a certain amount of trade support. So I think Jerry did a deal with, it might have been Champion, for free spark plugs. <laughs> and put the sticker on the side of the car. But we had a misfire throughout the, whatever the practice and first race was. But the engine had come with Autolite spark plugs. So we put the Autolite spark plugs back in again, and the engine ran clean. So, <laughs> as it happens, I think there was two heats, or one heat, or two, there were two heats in the final or something. Yeah, yeah. And then in the, in the final, I found myself, for I don't know why now, but making progress, and catching and overtaking drivers who I'd only ever known about by reading about them. And it was slightly surreal, but I didn't sense that I was doing anything different to that I would have done racing in Northern Ireland. And we had a very competitive championship in Northern Ireland, or in Ireland in general. And eventually, unfortunately, I went off the road at one of the complexes. But what it did, it was cement that dream, but also the realization that I had enough ability to <coughs> race with people that were the acknowledged stars of the day. And then with the assistance of my family, we ended up purchasing a Brabham BT30 to start the European Formula 2 Championship in 1970. Well, I'm going to move on then from your Formula 2 days because you then did get into Formula 1 with a privately owned Brabham. You showed well in that. Um, and you then had, I think, an unhappy season with Surtees. And then Roger Penske mm -hmm. approached you. Roger Penske, obviously, hugely important in American racing. But rather to everybody's surprise, he decided to do Formula One as well. <clears throat> he was doing it with Mark Donahue, with whom he had an incredibly close relationship. Mark Donahue and Roger Penske had really built uh, the, 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 the racing side of the Penske enterprise together. They went to the Austrian Grand Prix, running a single car, and sadly, Mark Donahue died. Uh, he was actually um, injured during practice, and the injury didn't seem to be very serious, but he died, I think, 24 hours later. And then you got a phone call. Yeah. Just to, to go back, at the end of 1974, I'd been racing for Hexagon, which was a privately backed by Bernie Brabham. Uh, and that team then withdrew at the end of 74 rather late. And the only option available to me was with John Surtees, who I'd been racing for in Formula 2. 
And actually, I was delighted to get that opportunity because I felt it was always better if you're a racing driver to be seen to be racing, even though the car may not be such a competitive car. But if you're seen to be putting in effort and commitment and whatever, uh, you may get a return. And I think that the outcome of that sad weekend in Austria in 75 was over the period of 75, I'd had you know, slightly more than hello Heinz or hello Roger, the communications were getting a little bit more on a friendly basis. And, you know, John, what are you doing in 76? If you, you know, we don't know what Mark's going to do, but you know, be interested in you maybe becoming a part of the Penske team. And that, of course, was accelerated after Mark's accident. So you were actually talking to Penske, or you were, you were kicking around yeah. the idea of the deal before Don Higgins' death? Yes, we weren't discussing a deal, it was just if an and or a but, because they were dependent on what Mark was going to do. And I think, looking back, that Mark probably would have retired from Formula One anyway at the end of 75. It, it, it's not easy if you're an American driver, an American team, albeit Penske was based on, based on and Poole and Dorset. But there are a lot of differences between life in the 70s in North America and life in Europe in the, in the middle 70s. So I felt, and maybe, maybe also Heinz Hofer, who was the team manager, that Mark would maybe not want to continue in 76. So it was, it was very casual, very just you walk by and, hi, what's happening today and what are you doing? Nothing more than that, there's nothing formal. But then once the reality of Penske needed a driver, uh, and in that 75 period, uh, John Surtees had not entered a car in two Grand Prix. So when the opportunity arose at the end of the 75 season for the US Grand Prix, then I felt I was in a position to accept it. And that, I know John was not necessarily overly happy about it, but it was an opportunity I needed to make to make progress as a, as a professional driver. And your team at the level that Roger Penske's teams operate at, it was a very important step and ultimately it turned out to be so. And of course there was then the fairy tale end to, not the end of the story, but the fairy tale stage, because exactly on the anniversary of Mark Donoghue's death, in the Austrian Grand Prix the following year, you won. Yeah. Now I've got to, um, ask you the question, because people always ask this question about you. You had a beard, yeah. and you were known as the bearded Formula One driver, or for those of us who swallowed a dictionary, you were the barbiferous Formula One driver. But Roger Penske was terribly clean, yes. and, and everything had to be terribly precise and terribly beautiful. Now, is it right that when you joined Penske, he asked you to shave your beard off and you refused. And you said, I'll shave my beard off when I'm in a Grand Prix. The story is half correct, the other half is incorrect. <laughs> and the incorrect bit is that when the negotiations were being carried out, uh, first of all, I wanted to shave the damn beard. I'd had it for a long time. And if anybody here remembers back to 1976, as certainly I do, it was an exceptionally hot summer. And this thing was driving me nuts. And I was about to shave it anyway, but the, 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 sort of the coincidence of having the chance to drive for Roger and the beard. So it came up in a discussion, and I said, look, I know you're not a big fan of beards, but I didn't want to be seen to shave it off because people would say, Roger told you to shave it, which wasn't the case. 
And uh, I said, look, when we win a Grand Prix, I promise you, I will shave the beard. And following the Grand Prix that evening, the Sunday evening, Roger Hanshoff and myself, we returned to London, because Roger then was flying out on the following morning back to the States. So we went into our respective bedrooms. I walked into the bathroom, got a razor out and shaved. And it was not a pretty sight. <laughs> Simply because, as you would say, it was a very hot summer. Everybody had a, a really wonderful tan on their face. But you take a beard off and it's like somebody's painted a big white mark. So it wasn't, it wasn't, in my opinion, particularly pretty. And then the following morning came down to have a breakfast meeting in the coffee shop and I got down first. And I'm sitting at a table as we are here. And I see Hans and Roger walk in. And Roger looks around to Hans and says, Hey Hans, where's Watson? Where's Watson? Like, Roger, over here, Roger, Roger! Where is he? And quite simply, uh, it hadn't occurred, I think, that I would have fulfilled my obligation as quickly as I did. So I came down, minus a beard, a new man, and delighted to get rid of the thing, as I mentioned, it was probably an irritant as much as it was very hot and just you know, really scratching the bloody thing. Well, so it, that, that was, that's the, that's it, the it, it made great headlines. So I'm yeah. going to move you on fairly rapidly because there's so much in your career. But you then moved on and had two seasons at Brown, one of them alongside Nicky Nardo, who of course was later yeah. going to be your teammate at McLaren. So let's deal with Nicky here because both at Brown and at McLaren, in fact, we saw you yes. uh, overtaking yeah. Nicky on, on screen there. What sort of a man, what sort of a teammate was Nicky Lard? Well, first of all, I like Nicky a lot. And uh, we were teammates at Brabham, and we knew one another from Formula 2. Uh, the, the thing that I hadn't appreciated was what makes a successful racing driver, what makes a, what makes a world champion in Formula 1. And Nicky had just won the second world championship at the point he came to Brabham. He also brought to Brabham his personal sponsor, and he carried that personal sponsorship on his overalls. So he actually came with a, a, a large amount of what I would call leverage. And because Bernie Eccleston is a pragmatic businessman, he didn't need to be invited twice to realize that apart from Nicky's successes and being a two-time world champion and his ability, both in terms of uh, communication with an engineer and his racing ability. So Bernie, and I'd asked him before Nicky signed because he said, you happy with Nicky? I said, all I ask Bernie is that we always receive equal treatment. And Bernie gave that undertaking. But what happens when Nicky joins a team is he's a very powerful presence and personality. And he understands, and I'd never experienced that type of personality or character in my life. I never had a teammate of Nicky's level before. And it's not what you do in the racetrack, it's the bit that you do away from the racetrack that creates the platform for you then to have the to have everything around you to give you, in this case Nicky, the, the best opportunity. He didn't give a damn about me as a competitor. He liked me as a person. And we, we remained friends and sadly until the day he passed away. But I'll give you one example just quickly because I know you have other questions. In Monaco in 78, in qualifying on Saturday, uh, about 10 minutes to go, 
the pole position was Carlos Reutem, and I was second quickest, and Nicky, I think, was either third or fourth at that point. I came in, and I'd run through three sets of tyres. At that time, you had four sets for qualifying. And I'm about to put my fourth set on, and the guy said, no, no, you've, you've, you're finished, you've, you've done your qualifying. I said, I don't think so. I've got one more set. No, 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 no. I said, I've got one more set. Where are they? Bernie put them in Nicky's car. And the reason why is quite simple. Again, purely pragmatically, and Bernie is a very pragmatic man. Nicky came in having run his full set of tires. He may have been bolted or something. But he came in and Bernie said, what's happened, what's happened? Nicky said, bah, 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 bah. usual story from a racing driver. I got bolted, but if I, if I had one more set of tires, I know I'd get pole position. And Bernie looked around, whose who's tires are those? And the guy said, that's John's fourth set. Put them in Nicky's car now. So that's what you get with Nicky. was still quicker than him. I was at the end, yes. <laughs> <laughs> which, which, anyway, it doesn't really matter now, it's a long time ago. But it, it just it, it illustrated to me that whatever you might have on a bit of paper is worthless. It's what an individual has got the capacity to do. And Nicky had those capacities. I love the guy a bit. I really enjoyed the three years we were teammates. We had a lot of fun, a lot of laughter. But he's the worst, I tell you, the biggest gossip god ever put breath into. Never ever tell Nicky Lauda a secret, even though he's passed away. <laughs> well, we, we might as well deal with Bernie here, because um, obviously Bernie is now known uh, for how Bernie was for 30 years in Formula One. But in, in many ways, the most interesting period of Bernie's life, before he just devoted all his energies yes. to making Formula One huge, was when he was actually running his own Formula One team, Brown, and you drove for him. So, what was it like being Bernie's man in Formula One? Well, Bernie fundamentally ran the business of Formula One, ran the business of Brown, and he left all the engineering decisions primarily to Gordon Murray, yeah. and others that worked with Gordon Murray, and, and Herbie Blash, who was another of Bernie's sort of lieutenants, as you might call them. So basically, all Bernie was concerned about was the aesthetics of the car. And in 76, he got Martini sponsorship. So the car, instead of being white, no, he had, sorry, had Martini sponsorship, so the car went red because of Alfa Romeo, and then with the Martini sponsorship. Uh, and that was the first time, actually, Bernie had, in a sense, acknowledged that I cannot afford to run a team out of my own pocket. I need to have support, I need a, an engine supplier. And of course, Ferrari had had great success with a flat 12 engine. And Alfa Romeo made a flat 12 engine. So it was a natural, a free engine, a flat 12 engine, more horsepower than a DFE. Why not? But in, in truth, while it was a wonderful engine, uh, it was quite large, it was bigger than the Ferrari engine, it was heavier, it probably wasn't as fuel efficient as the Ferrari engine was, but it was free. <laughs> and you know, free. <laughs> that four letter word means an awful lot to team principles. Absolutely. All right, well now we're going to move on because the next fascinating stage of your career, in fact the team that you drove for for the remainder of your Formula One career, was McLaren. Now you joined McLaren in the pre-Ron Dennis era, but it was only after Ron 
took over with John Barnard, the brilliant designer, yes. that things really began to happen. I'm going to mention quickly something here because Max Kingsley-Jones is in the audience and I know he has written an article for the next Brooklyn's Bulletin about what was so revolutionary about the MP4 McLaren because of its carbon fibre monocoque. And John Barnard's pioneering use of carbon fibre was helped uh, by the advice and guidance from Arthur Webb of uh, British Aerospace. I don't know whether Arthur's here tonight, he was hoping to be. But John, you then found yourself in this Formula One car made of carbon fibre. And in those days they didn't have the accident testing. Nobody quite knew what this revolutionary uh, material, that he was very stiff, that he was very light, but nobody actually knew what was going to happen if a carbon fibre car with the driver's feet hanging out in front hit a brick wall. Well, one might say it was my Chuck Yeager moment. And again, Chuck Yeager was the first pilot to break the sign barrier. And no one knew what would happen when he broke the sign barrier, but he lived to tell the tale. So one was uncertain as to what would happen with a full carbon fiber chassis Formula One car if you had a major accident. Now, I was fortunate in that my young Italian teammate, Andrea de Cesaris, tragically no longer with us as one, he crash tested it on 17 occasions <laughs> in 1981, and it stood up to it brilliantly. I'd won big shunt at Monza in 81, in which the car went, I went off backwards at Lesbo 2 and ripped the gearbox and engine from the chassis, and there was a sort of a vapor flash, flame, fire, whatever. The car performed exactly to the design integrity that John Barnard and others, Arthur Webb, but equally also the Hercules Corporation in North America, who actually, I believe, made the initial chassis for McLaren. And that chassis, I think, might have gone back to North America, to the Hercules Corporation, for reasons they wanted to see it and understand it. But I could say that, unquestionably, that accident, which I just stepped out of the car, walked away, and had apologized to the team for destroying a car. But it had been a, a, a regular aluminium steel monocoque, potentially it would have been a much more serious accident because the nature of the material vis-a-vis -vis what carbon fibre was able to do probably would have been quite marked and there's a, you know, it could have been a major fire, it could have been a chassis buckling in the middle, whatever. No one ever knows because you can never replicate precisely one accident with another one. But certainly the car performed as to the design criteria that uh, John Barnard and others, uh, Arthur Webb you mentioned, uh, designed it to do. It, it passed its crash test in a practical way, and that was the only way we had in those days to test a car. Well, the car really got into its stride by the middle of the season. You were third in the Spanish Grand Prix, three consecutive races now, third in Spain, second in France, then the British Grand Prix, which you won, your home Grand Prix, and clearly then, Everybody was saying this is a great car. Now, we've talked about Bernie. Uh, what about uh, Ron Dennis? Because now Ron was running McLaren, um, and of course, we all know Ron became an absolutely towering figure with what he created with McLaren. That was quite early in the days of Ron running McLaren. Yeah. What, what, what was he like then? Well, I'll give you an example of, of Ron, and Ron is, I think, misunderstood. And 
sometimes it lays at his own door. What Ron has achieved in his career, his life within motorsport, is, I think, equal to that of what I believe. Well, there's three people I've worked with over my motor racing career, and three of them are Bernie Eccleston, Roger Penske, and Ron Dennis, and I think all three are towering giants for their achievements in their respective areas in, in motorsport, but Formula One. And I got a phone call, I think it was 1981 somewhere, uh, and Ron's on the phone, and it was in Ron's speak. Now, I know there's a member of the team who understands Ron's speak. And Neil, does Ron still speak in Ron's speak or not? You don't think so? Okay. <laughs> so anyway, it was a guy. What it boiled down to was, I want you to turn up at a, a summer in Weybridge, if I'm not mistaken, very close, a conference hotel. I said, why? Don't ask, just be there. <laughs> All right, okay. So I turned up and there was a large conference hall and there was a, the conference was being given by a, a gentleman called Edward de Bono. Now, does anybody here know who Edward de Bono, tragically he's gone as well, who he was or who, what, he, what is... Management speak, Lateral thinking, exactly. And I'm sitting there, what in the name of God am I doing sitting here listening to a bloke talk about lateral thinking? Years later, the penny began to drop because it went. Ron wanted me to go there to try to think more about how I could improve as a racing driver, but also maybe as a member of a team and developing myself. And Ron was doing likewise. He wanted to expand himself. And I know he mentioned on a number of occasions that most human beings only use a smallish percentage of the brain capacity that we have. And he wanted everybody in McLaren to use more of the capacity that they had to be able to do their jobs better. And that's an illustration of what Ron was thinking about at that very early stage in his life and career at McLaren. And I've got a huge amount of respect and admiration for Ron. Not always easy sometimes, but he always put the team first. It was always about McLaren. It was never about Ron Dennis or any other person, John Barnard or me or Nicky or whoever. It was always about the, putting McLaren first and foremost, and he achieved that. Mm, absolutely. Well, 1982, we've just seen that wonderful film of Detroit. In 1982, Nicky Lyder was your teammate. You finished ahead of him uh, in the championship. In fact, you very nearly won the World Championship. You were leading the World Championship for quite a lot of the season. Uh, you won Zolna mm. from 12th on the grid. You won that astonishing victory round the streets of Detroit that we just watched from 17th on the grid. Um, you now have the reputation of being the arch overtaker. So, tell us about that technique. There you were driving against the best racing drivers in the world, pretty much. And you were able to pick them off one by one. I mean, the moment I love in that race is when you were actually passing Nicky Lardo because I don't think Nicky quite expected you to do that. So, what, what is the overtaking technique? I don't think that I've got a specific sort of textbook technique, but I mean, take Detroit for example. When the race part two started, uh, P2 
Pierre Dupasquet, who was the Michelin tire guru, manager, whoever, came to me on the grid and said, John, take off the, we were using a Michelin, I think the code was an 06, which was the softest of the options we had. Put on the 05, and he, think, he said, you'll win the race. There was nobody around. Teddy Mayer, who was running my car, wasn't around. And there was only the guys who were working on the car. And I said, look, Depasque said we should put on the old thought. So we've changed. Whether we should have done it or not, I don't know. But under park firm air conditions, maybe you shouldn't. But anyway, put on the old <laughs> There was nobody there to say not to do it. Uh, so we put on the old fives. And then the race started. And the car and I worked together. The thing that the, the MP4 1 slash B or whatever it happened to be was a very, very effective car. The difficulty that we had in Detroit and on street circuits principally was the, the, the grade of Michelin was being slightly more or influenced by what Renault needed because they had a heavier car, more power, more torque. We couldn't generate tire temperature in a qualifying tire. We, we could get surface temperature, but you need to get core temperature as well as surface temperature. So we weren't using the qualifying tire on street tracks efficiently. But come the race, you put in a load of fuel, the extra weight and the extra dynamic load going into the tires squished the tires more, generated core temperature, and the car lit up and was fantastic to drive. Now, in terms of overtaking Nicky, to be honest, he wasn't awfully hard to overtake. His, Nicky's great strength as a racing driver was the creation of the, of the platform he used so successfully in all his championships. In other words, to put himself at the front of a grid and then dictate a race from the front. In Detroit, he sat behind uh, Cheever and Pieroni for God knows how many laps. I came up with my own speed momentum, passed him into turn one, easy peasy. Got Shiva a few corners later and got Pironi then straight out. So I maintained my momentum. I didn't allow that to be halted by the pace of the cars I was catching. And that's a key to how you find a way. But I think there are some drivers who are inherently more natural, what I would call racers or overtakers than others. And there are other drivers whose greatest strengths lie in leading from the front and dictating and dominating. So it's horses for courses. And I think in that circuit, the strengths that I had uh, played to my strength of being a, you know, a good race driver and being concise and catch, overtake, move on, catch, overtake, move on. When I caught Rosberg, which I did, I'm not sure how many laps it was midway through the race, Keke had done his fastest race lap and I had taken a lap, I'd taken three seconds out of that fastest. Keke said afterwards, once I saw it, I just I gave up. I knew I couldn't beat him. <laughs> in fairness, uh, I think Michelin played a, a significantly large part of the victory. Keke was on good years, uh, which worked really well in qualifying. But I think as the race progressed, maybe Keke, his driving style might have been a more aggressive style. Maybe he wore the tire. So he lost grip. He was doing everything he could. I caught him in the same place I passed Nicky in, and uh, no problem. Yeah. Eventually, Nicky woke up and got the the penny dropped. You can overtake. So he passed Cheever and passed Pironi as well. But when he came to pass Keke, he came up into turn one and he sort of went, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. And then Keke shut, closed across the front of him and knocked his nose off. What Nicky needed to do was come up, positive, bosh, bosh, bosh. Don't 
hesitate. Don't show any signs of will I, won't I, will he, will he not. You dictate what you're doing and almost by telepathy tell the driver I'm coming through. There's no question. I'm coming through. Accept it. I'm going to pass you. Well, you did it again, of course. Um, <clears throat> Long Beach, I think, was it the following season? Yes, 83. Um, and you were 22nd on the grid. Yeah. And you won the race. Was that a, a tire element as well? Very much so. Again, Long Beach and Detroit had very similar kinds of... First of all, they're fundamentally what you might describe as a matrix street layout, so there was tight lefts, tight rights. There was no what I would call big corner on either racetrack. And in fact, both of us, Nikki and I, started 21st, 22nd. So when we got going, I had, to, I was determined never to let. Oh, this is going out as on the, on what do you call it? Um, YouTube. YouTube, yeah. So I can't call Nikki a prick, can I? <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't let him get ahead. Wait, I couldn't let him get a car ahead of me. So I was this doppelganger. So every time he passed, I was right in behind him. Right in behind him. And eventually, because other drivers had made errors and some had crashed and some had failed with mechanical issues, we found ourselves, Nicky leading and I was in second place. And I was quite determined to find a way past. And again, I and, used... And of course, just to be clear, Nicky was your teammate. Teammate. So one would expect, certainly Ron, I'm sure, was hoping that you would behave yourselves and you would finish first and second and there wouldn't be any problems. Exactly what we did. <laughs> we did second and second. We finished first and second, which is what Ron wanted. There was no team order, there was no, no sign hold the position. So it was up to us to do what we had to do. And again, 12, 15 laps out, down there was a long, sh something shore drive at Long Beach, and then you came down to a tight right, then left, and another right. And I took a bit of a punt down the inside, had a momentary lock up on the brakes, and the car sort of flitched across. Oh! What'd you do that for? You know, he, he thought I was going to hit him, which I didn't do. I might have hit him afterwards, but it wasn't going to hit him in the car. And uh, so I got through, and I never saw him again. So, as Ron's wish, McLaren finishing first and second was fulfilled. Well, now, that was, sadly, your last season yes. at McLaren, because Ron realised he had the chance of getting Alan Cross with Nicky Lider, yeah. and you got the phone call. And you were fired. So, did, oh, did you say Simon, Simon. Uh, fired is a word I'm not very fond of. Uh, <laughs> the, you left the team. No, it wasn't. I didn't leave the team either. What occurred was that I had a contract in 1983 for a single year. And Nicky had renegotiated a two-year deal. Uh, so, at the end of 80, 82, 83, sorry, uh, I was out of contract. So, it was just simply a, a contractual issue. And... Following the South African Grand Prix, for reasons that I can't even say on YouTube because it probably would get me into deep, deep trouble, Alain Prost was summoned on the Sunday morning, because it was a Saturday race in South Africa, Alain had flown back to Paris and he was summoned to the Regie headquarters. And the Regie headquarters of Renault. Uh, Renault, yes. Yeah. And they were going to guillotine him. But I gather somebody pleaded, you know, whatever, don't do this, it's too, that's too much. So they, they did fire him. Can I just interrupt here, because you're, you're very politically correct in, in not wanting YouTube to know the truth. But actually, when I interviewed you um, about ten years ago, and I wrote with 
no complaint in the magazine I was then writing for. That the reason why Alan Prost had got fired was because he got into a rather close relationship with one of the wife of the wife of one of the radio directors. That I think has got a very strong element of truth about it. <laughs> Is, is dogged by scurrilous rumours. So, he, anyway, that, that's the sort of background, but you did leave McLaren, yeah. and you've been in Formula One for 10 years. There were other Formula One offers that you could have taken, but you made the decision to leave Formula One and go sports car racing. Were you, were you bitter? Were you disappointed? Well, I was, I was disappointed, first of all, because it was, a, it was an unusual set of circumstances that had arisen. It was one that nobody had foreseen. And I fully accept and understand why Marlborough and McLaren, when they had the opportunity of Alain, who was a young driver who was going to have a long career ahead of him, and at the same time McLaren had two drivers both in their 30s, who at any point could turn around and decide to step away. So you don't look a gift horse in the mouth twice, and Alain was that gift horse. So after... Um, the, the separation, let's say, or the conclusion of an agreement or a contract. I had discussions with two other teams. One was with Jackie Oliver. And Jackie Oliver did make me an offer, which I could refuse. And the other one was uh, John Clare Special Lotus. Then came to me and asked me would I drive in the 84 season. Because fundamentally, JPS needed a British driver in one of the cars. And the incumbent driver at that time was a, a young man from Birmingham. <laughs> but some of the personnel in the team were not fans of Birmingham. <laughs> and they frankly would have done anything to dump them. And they came to me because I, I was suddenly available. Let's see if John would be, like, would be interested in driving. And we had a number of discussions, but at the end of the day, and I've always gone by instinct and things that maybe are not so tangible, but just emotions and feelings, and after 10 years in Formula One, I didn't really want to move into a new family and re-establish relationship. And I decided that none of the, they weren't on the right tire at that time. There were other issues which I'll not go into. And it just, it, I didn't have a feeling that this was the right thing to do. And I, it's, a, it's, it's not a pragmatic approach, it's an emotional approach. And I said, thank you, but it's not something I would like to do. Yeah. So at the end of 83, I was an out-of-work racing driver. And then in 84, their opportunities came. Uh, one, some with Porsche, in fact, with the Rothwell's Porsche sports car team. And uh, I also I drove at Le Mans. I, Ironically, this weekend. Yeah. What a club race that's turned into. <laughs> I've never seen worse drive in the last two days. On the, honestly, it's appalling. Mm. Terrible. I can't believe these are some of them. Well, they're not all professional. But anyway, let's move on. Well, I mean, <laughs> if, if we're, just one word about your sports car career, because you drove successfully for Porsche. You. Um, very successful with those wonderful Silk Cup Jaguars in the second um, in the world sports car drivers championship. Um, 
just a word on the difference of approach, the difference of discipline between Formula One racing and the top end of endurance racing, sports car racing. Group C racing, largely thanks to Porsche with the 956 and then the 962, and other manufacturers of Jaguar you mentioned, was very, very competitive. The cars were also very physical cars, they were, they were, they were ground effect cars. They were physically heavy to drive, had a lot of caster, a lot of steering was always heavy. You had to sit quite close to the steering wheel to get enough leverage or leverage or whatever you want to say to make them to drive the car uh, in control. And also, a lot of the races were long distance races. So I was accustomed to doing an hour and a half to two hours in a Grand Prix car, getting off and starting off to the airport and going home. And all of a sudden, you're Driver changes in and out, and you do each would do an hour stint or whichever way around it might have been. And then you have the dreaded 24 hours. I mean, to me, Le Mans has always been 22 hours too long. And, and I think it would be a much better race if it was a two hour race. Well, I still cherish the sight of you in those silk cut Jaguars. I mean, one of the charismatic sports cars of the 80s with their, those yeah. uh, silk colours. Now, I'm going to move on quite quickly because I, I do want to get some questions from the audience. Um, <clears throat> but after you came out of sports car racing and you had all sorts of other projects, there was the Racing Drivers School yeah. um, at Silverstone, um, but also you became a very successful commentator. You've been first a radio, then a TV commentator for, what, 30 years now? So you're absolutely up to speed with what's going on in modern racing. Let's have a word about today's Formula One, the much criticised state that Formula One has got itself into. What do you think of the current state of Formula One? <coughs> I mean, one might say that it's a, the progress that's taken place since 83 to the present day is just mind-boggling. Uh, Which I mean the technological problem. And that's the problem. It's become a sport that's a do dominated by technology. Whereas I believe well, there's always been technology in Formula One. But where we are now, it, it is so sophisticated and so complicated, but equally so damned expensive, especially around the aerodynamics and the time and money spent in that area of Formula One design. But also the hybrid engines that we're using, they are phenomenal. I mean, for a Grand Prix, that I would have done in 83 with around 500 horsepower. These modern engines are up nearly at 1,000, certainly 900 horsepower, and they're using a third less fuel. Now that's amazing in terms of what engineers have done to give double the, almost double the horsepower and use a third less fuel. But there's something that's lacking, and to me, Formula One has always had two elements. One is the visual element, and the other is the, the oral, the audio element. And occasionally we hear a V8 or a V10 at a demonstration of a Grand Prix. And everybody runs to the fence to, what is that? What is that? And I think that's what's lacking. And maybe because the growth of manufacturer involvement is partly responsible. I suspect that it probably isn't because there's an element of political uh, influence within the governing body of motorsport that wants to be seen to be acting in a manner which would be appropriate in the current ecological climate that we're living in. So 
it's no longer the sport that I loved. It's a different sport. I've got great admiration for the drivers, but I, I think that if I look back at the McLaren MP4-1, how clean a design that car was, simply, or not, not simple, but uncomplicated aerodynamics. The beauty of MP4-1 and the derivatives up until the end of 82 was that they were effectively a ground effect car. And the, you may have noticed in the, the footage of Detroit, I didn't knock off the front wings in my car because we didn't start with front wings on the car. We were able to get enough aerodynamic downforce in the front. Other methods, I mean, could take the front wings off. So I would love to see the future, and I saw the mock-up of the, the, the 2022 car at Silverstone, and it's as big as a barge. It's enormous. And I don't know why it needs to be enormous. Is it uh, an oversimplification to say, because the technology is so extraordinary, it's so brilliant, uh, and, and so much competition is going on between the teams to get the optimum technology, is it fair to say that Grand Prix today are won by the car and not the driver? I mean, we've seen George Russell, for example, um, young, very inexperienced British driver driving for one of the teams which sadly at the moment is one of the slowest, so he's running at the back. Uh, Lewis Hamilton has COVID. He's suddenly leapfrogged into uh, a Mercedes and he very nearly wins the race. Absolutely. And that seems to indicate to me that the technology matters more than the speed and the experience of the driver. There's always been an element of that uh, as technology began to evolve, particularly in the 70s, with ground effects. When ground effects came in in 78 with the Lotus 79, they dominated basically, and only because Bernie Eccleston and Gordon Murray came up with the fan car, which was a major threat and challenge to Chapman and his domination. So there's always been an element of technology having an advantage, but it's, it's the direction that this technology is going in. And it's, it's, it's not coincidental that the best, the top drivers of any generation end up in the best cars. Mm -hmm. It would be interesting to see the drivers who, if you take, let's for example, take the, the two Haas drivers and put them into a Mercedes, would they win a Grand Prix? Maybe one of them might. Uh, maybe both might, I don't know. I tell you what, when you drive a, a car at the level and the quality of a Mercedes or a Red Bull, and even you know, a McLaren right now, local team, their car looks like it certainly works for one driver, not necessarily for Ricardo. But you take those three brands and take drivers at the back of the grid and stick them in and swap their drivers around. For sure, Lewis isn't going to win in a Haas. Max Verstappen ain't going to win in a Haas. Um, another thing that intrigues me, it's always interesting to talk to the drivers, if you can get them to talk off the record, which are the drivers that they most reckon. And consistently, drivers have said that they think that Fernando Alonso, certainly team managers have said that they think Fernando Alonso, he may have passed his best now, but he has been possibly the supreme talent in Formula 1, but he's never quite managed to get himself in the right car. Would that be your view? I think Fernando is one of my heroes. I think he's a phenomenal competitor. And again, it's not necessarily always about being the single guy on the fastest lap at every session and qualifying. 
what Fernando is is just an amazing amalgam of all the qualities, but principally an outstanding race driver. He also won a world championship or a third world championship at Ferrari, but for reasons maybe he got a little bit beyond the role of being a driver and wanted to have more influence in other areas in the operation of the team. And I mean, Nicky was a prime example of that. But Nicky achieved a great deal uh, in Ferrari and then, of course, at McLaren. So maybe Fernando was guilty of doing, or straying into areas, particularly at Ferrari, with the political you know, platform that Ferrari has, and maybe that contributed to him not winning a world championship. But if you put him right now into, into a Mercedes-Benz, I guarantee you he'll, he could win a world championship. Sure. Right, well look, John, you've been wonderful through uh, my questions. Let's see if there's anybody in the audience who can wave a hand. I think Steve has got a microphone. Yeah, absolutely. Ladies so, and John Watson. Pretty biased, as you know. I think this is going to be one of our classic talks, don't you? Yeah. Without a doubt. Right. Yeah. You're going to go around with your and Wave your hand. Wave your arm. Yeah, I'll um, come over to you. I, I recognise this gentleman, so. Uh, well, John, welcome. It's great to have you here. Question about McLaren. You were with them for two years before they changed and became uh, Marlboro McLaren with Ron Dennis. The move from a steel chassis into a carbon fibre chassis. How did you feel driving it for the first time? I mean, the, the difference of the two chassis, uh, the initial reaction and response was that I had to keep my elbows much closer to my side in a carbon fibre tub than that of a, an aluminium tub because occasionally you've got to make a quick movement. If your elbow hit the side of an aluminium tub, well, it was painful. There's a certain amount of yield in the aluminium. but you hit it with a carbon fibre tub, it didn't yield. So it hurt. So you learned instead of having it on your arm, you had to tuck your arms right in and just make sure that if you were going to make a manoeuvre, that you gave yourself space that you didn't, you know, bang your elbow, which, you know, it's, it's painful. Uh, so that was the, the principle, uh, the difference in, in sitting in the car or driving the car. The, the, the torsional rigidity that the carbon fibre car had over the aluminium car, all it did was provide a much more stable platform for all the attachments, the suspension and the aerodynamics, the bodywork. So it gave that a much better consistency. So because the downforce, let's say in 82, was actually quite significant, the loads were going up and up and up. And it meant that we had something that was easier to make car adjustments and get a response from an adjustment. Whereas if you had a very soft or floppy twisting chassis, I mean, I know that some cars in high-speed corners find that the steering because there's so much movement in the front uh, bulkheads, the front bulkhead, that caused the steering to lock because there's enough twist to, to cause the steering rack to, to momentarily jam. 
So it's not a very good idea. So that was one of the, the principles. The other thing I think that the carbon fiber tub brought, and there was, a, it was a, there was a cultural change within McLaren at the point when John Barnard came in. And because McLaren was based on Bruce McLaren, and all the, the fantastic things that Bruce did in Formula One, Can-Am and Indy, and the team was very much a team of New Zealand personnel. But John came in, and John is not a New Zealander. Uh, he's, he had very, very clear ideas of how he wanted his car to be built. And the car was designed to exacting standards, and everything was done on a full-scale drawing board. And every attachment to the car, when it came to be fitted, fitted precisely. So that was one element. And Previously, uh, I think at McLaren, it would be fair to say that there was an influence from the factory floor on occasions as to where certain items might be fitted on a chassis, largely for convenience. With John, there was none of that. Here is the car. Here is the design. This is how it will be built. So that changed a little bit of the culture initially. And I think once people understood what John was doing, then they embraced it because he took McLaren forward from two very difficult years in 79 and 80, forward into a new era with new technology. And Teddy and Tyler were both still a part of the team in 81 at the point when Ron then came in and through 82, at the end of 82, then they went their own uh, different ways. But it was... The, the, the foundations were with what John set out from the design office through to the construction, through to the factory floor, then to the build bays and whatever. And I say it was a cultural shock initially, but it was very quickly embraced because I think everybody recognized that the way forward was the way that John was laying it out. Brilliant. I've got another question at the back here, John. I was watching a YouTube video a while ago, I can't remember the title, but uh, the video was about uh, Ayrton Senna, and according to this video, it mentioned that just before he joined McLaren, you gave him advice, basically saying that in order to fit in well with the team, the best thing to do is to learn from Alan Prost, learn from him how to fit into the team. And apparently he thought about your advice, and after a while he thought, no, this is all wrong. In order to become a world champion, the whole of the team has to fit around him. That's what he set out to do and did. Do you still believe that your advice was the correct and right advice? Well, I think you've told the whole story, to be honest, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it, it happened that we were both in Austria at the Vili Dungle training camp. And at that point, I was driving in with Jaguar and the Silk Cup Jaguars, and Senna was driving the Lotus with the Honda Power. And we went up one day, we were bicycling around the hills, and he said, John, tell me, you, you've been at McLaren, tell me about the team. I said, do you think you're going to drive for the team? He said, well, you know, I'm looking at whatever. And I suggested that he might want to think about the, if you like, the hierarchy within the team. And Alain Prost had won what, two world championships at that stage, 75 and 76. And I said, well, you know, if you're going to go to McLaren, be aware that the team is almost now totally centralized around Alain. Whoever the second driver is, 
I mean, Nicky had retired at the end of 84, 85, and then 86 was Keke, and he didn't get on with the, the basic car setup that John Barnard had laid out. 87 was Stefan Johansson. So it was Alan's team. And Alan was a, a very engaging, is a very engaging man, who became almost the sort of the, not the baby of the team, but sort of the mascot of the team. So Alan's very well connected with Mansour Rouget and with Ron and with John Barnard. And, you know, if you want to join the team, when you go there, just work your way in and find your own direction. And he sort of looked at me for a minute and said, no. When I go there, suddenly he was thinking about it, now he was definitely going to go there. <laughs> I'm going to go in and I'm going to destroy Prost. I'm going to destroy him in terms of speed. I'm going to destroy him mentally. I'm going to basically... He knew what he had to do, and it was a mercurial view he had, but he knew that Alan was going to be his biggest challenger in 88, and he had to assert himself quickly, and in a way that would, in a sense, dominate Alan, because Alan came back and fought in his particular way, and that was for me in 88, such an amazing year, albeit a year dominated by McLaren. Yeah. Okay, I've got um, possibly not a question, uh, I'm here with Neil Trundle, Senna's mechanic. So perhaps you can throw some light here. <laughs> um, I'm really glad that we mentioned Arthur Webb, who was um, a prime mover in the Golden Chassis construction. Is Arthur here tonight? I don't think yeah, he is. is. No. Uh, he worked hundreds of hours with John to um, help him with the engineering on that chassis. In fact, John, we've still got your Monza chassis up on the shelf with all the back missing, if you ever want to pick it up, so. <laughs> <laughs> with so many fakes around, it would be nice to have a genuine chassis, albeit one that was ripped apart, yeah. because I could maybe get somebody to patch it up and bond it in a bit of new carbon fibre. No, I could all of a sudden have an MP4 no, one-to-one. You one, never have a job on it. Presumably Bernie's got one collection. Has Ron still kept Tony cars? Do we know? Ron Dennis has got 10 cars as part of his separation. Yeah. Two Hondas and lots of Mercedes cars. So, uh, and it's worth mentioning the, um, the carbon chassis when we first got that from Hercules. So, a good honeycomb chassis was 5,004 pounds per degree stiffness because they were so narrow with ground effect. And when we got that car back from Hercules, it was 11,004 pounds, twice the stiffness. That's why it worked. The, the MP4, um, sorry, the McLaren M30 was like a banana. They took it to the test, got it out of the box, and um, one wheel was not touching the ground, so they put it back in the box again. And that, of course, the Garber chassis was the prime mover in the amalgamation. And that started out as the Project 4 from the one car. It was never original. Anyway, my question, digress, <laughs> is John. Have you ever thought of getting involved in the politics of Formula One? And if you were, I'm very disappointed in Ross. I mean, it's clear that Formula One teams, they're really all on borrowed money. They're all spending more on development than they've got. Um, have you ever thought of getting involved in the politics? And what would you do? A few major items to bring the cost down and arrest the escalation and keep more, keep the teams informed. I mean, a budget cap is a great concept, but I don't know how it is in reality going to be truly 
implemented, but I'm sure their teams will always find ways through associated companies or you know, offshore companies or whatever. I don't think it's right that you go back and, and say make a facsimile of the car we had at MP41 or its derivatives because that's not where Formula One needs to go. But when I see Ross occasionally, we used to go fishing actually up on, right now this time of three or four, we were up on Iceland salmon fishing. And you get a chance when you're doing something like that to speak to a man who's in a very powerful and influential position. And I kept saying to him, you've got to go back, take the arrow, the front and rear arrow, put on a spec front wing, a spec rear wing, that'll save money, and put in the aerodynamic tunnels. Now you have to come up with concepts to write a rule because writing a rule is one thing, but then having 20 people in a pit lane and all that interpreting it, they'll come up with concepts you never even considered. I don't know how you're ever going to do it other than, let's say you want to go into an indie car kind of formula where you've got a car made by Dallara in Italy, and within, there's a certain amount of flexibility you're allowed to develop, but it is fundamentally a one-spec chassis. I don't know whether that would be a way forward or not. It would certainly save a lot of money, and you could certainly simplify a lot of the, the costs that go into the R&D and the aerodynamics and all that stuff. But then, is it going to be Formula One? And, and would you get uh, firms like Ferrari or Mercedes, was so much part of the branding of their of their car, of their, their mark. That's why they go racing. They're not going to use a chassis which was quietly made by Delara with the Ferrari badge on it or a Mercedes badge on it. You're probably right, but I think, and I've, I've said this, and I've had other people disagree, but I think that the the, the high point of Formula One was the 70s and into the early 80s, maybe the mid 80s, and principally because the bulk of the field were made up by what I describe as owner-drivers. So Colin Chapman, Ken Tyrrell, Bruce McLaren, Jack Brabham, then Bernie, and on it goes. And those team principals, that was their business. That's, they made their living out of running a Formula One team. It wasn't an, a, a sort of adjunct to a major manufacturing company who were in it for an entirely different purpose. And what I miss now in Formula One is having, God bless him, even EJ, you know, Eddie George, <laughs> what a personality and character. And you, Formula One has no longer got those people around. And you know, Bernie was a character, Max was a character. I can hear the hook cracking right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there was a question over there, I think. I think I'm going to... Thank you. Very simple question, John. In, in your career in F1, who do you consider was the greatest Formula One driver you raced against? Oh. And I include the 1985 cameo you made yeah. in the Grand Prix, which Senna was in. I mean, I, I was asked to do a top ten driver of my era, the 70s primarily, and you have to put Nicky simply because of his achievements and he was ultimately the outstanding driver, let's say from 73 up until 83, 82. And then in 85, I'd had a one-off race at Brands, and it was a, a, a eureka moment, because I'd finished my qualifying lap, was returning to the pits around the back of the circuit, and I noticed suddenly this black shape and a bright yellow helmet, and it was Senna on his flying lap. And what I saw 
made me realize that I could still be a Formula One driver, but I wasn't, I didn't have what, what, what Senna was displaying. He was only about 24 at that time, 25 maybe. And he was making his Lotus. It, it was just as if it was dancing on the racetrack. And he went down the dip at Dingledale, up into uh, Dingledale Corner. And he was doing things, and I could hear him. He was changing gear, pumping the throttle, braking. I thought this guy must have three hands and three legs. Because I had never heard a racing driver be so busy. And the car was literally, it was just on the point of flying off the racetrack. But it was in full control. And it, it made me understand that, okay, I can still drive a racing car, but I'm not going to be able to achieve what Senna had just illustrated to me. And that made him stand out to me as being an exceptional driver amongst many great drivers. But in terms of who would I consider to be the, the greatest driver of those that I competed against, clearly Nicky would be one of them. Uh, Emerson Fittipaldi, Jody Schechter, James in his heyday in 76, 77 in particular, was a formidable competitor. And James, I never considered to be a race driver. He was just a competitor. He was an animal. And he just, all he wanted to do was win. Anything else had no interest in whatsoever. So you had a lot of outstanding drivers. And then at the back end of 17, well, 1980, Alain Prost joined. And from that very early phase, Alan did a test on Paul Ricard. And Alan was the, the choice of, uh, of Marlborough. And there was an American kid called Kevin Coogan. Kevin Coogan was the, the choice of Teddy. So I went out in the M29 and did a few laps and came in and said, okay, the, the car, it's a stable platform. And Kevin was first in the car. And before he even moved out of the pit lane, <laughs> I thought, Jesus wept. <laughs> okay, and that's the first time in a Formula One car. Alan came and did his lap. He never heard it go into gear. Everything was just seamless. And his driving was seamless. And it stood out a country mile that Alan was going to be. Uh, uh, well, he, first of all, he could take the uplift in terms of the car, the performance, the weight, the downforce, just completely naturally and never looked back. And in 80, uh, sorry, 1980, he had a, a very good sense of what were, in effect, minor adjustments to the car, you know, a spring adjustment, a damper adjustment, a roll bar adjustment. And he actually created a situation, not in, he didn't do it himself, it was created by the team around him, that they thought that the lack of performance that we were getting out of MP29, or M29, was more to do with me than it was to do with the team in the car. The reality was that the, the the manner in which the team were running M29 was they were denying the skirt of the tunnels and the underbody of the car the full amount of airflow that it needed. So at, towards the end of uh, 1980, Allah is king and McLaren produced M30. You've heard Neil describe the, the chassis. M30 was meant to be a step forward from M29. Alan got the car on the Dutch Grand Prix. I got the upgraded M29 with the carbon fiber underbody, which made a difference. I had a good race in the Dutch Grand Prix, and Alan had a poor one. Monza, likewise, went to North America, 
And then Ron and John turned up all of a sudden, and John then started to work with me, because we were working with them 29, and Teddy and Alan were working with them 30. And John looked at the car and said to the guys, lift that front ride height up. I said, what are you doing? He didn't really want to question John particularly. Anyway, he said, go out, try it, come in, and tell me what the differences are. I came in with a smile on my face. John, it's like night and day. All of a sudden, I've got a fantastic race car. And what all that, basically all that John had done was make a few changes, aerodynamic changes, the biggest of which was the ride height adjustment, which allowed a lot more air to flow onto the, the tunnels, the ground effect tunnels, which then enabled them to work in the manner in which they had been designed. And the car had grip, and it was, it was fantastic. I'd never driven a car, a ground effect car up until that point that worked as well. And of course, then we went to Watkins Glen. Alan still flogging around in the M30, getting nowhere. Sadly, had an accident, and he didn't race on the Sunday. And I had a very good car again in Watkins Glen. And it made me understand that what aerodynamics can do. So the, the principle that we had been running the car with was a sort of a, a nose-down attitude, and we needed to do that to get the air to go under. It was Eureka. Can I just take you back to, you, you, when talking about drivers, you were really graphic about Ayrton Senna, great story of Ayrton Senna at Brands Hatch. But then you also talked about Alan Prost's precision and smoothness. Um, that was an extraordinary battle between those two characters. There they were in the same team. And it was like a kind of Italian opera because they could not have been more different in character. And they were in the same team, they hated each other, they were fighting each other. We saw the collision in Japan and so on. So looking at those two, was it the genius of Senna, or was it the, the polish of Prost? Wh which would you go for? I have enormous admiration and respect for Alan's achievements. But I think the thing that puts Senna as, as you like, the most visually exciting and stimulating driver to watch was the manner in which, particularly when he was doing qualifying laps, when you were turning the, the boost up to a thousand plus horsepower, and the way that he could manhandle that horsepower in a way that it just visually just, wow, it just, there's a pop. Where Alan was coming through and it was so precise and so progressive, it didn't, didn't show up. It showed on the stopwatch, but Senna made Formula One visually exciting. And I suppose because of that, that was, that was the direction I would have gone. But I mean, what Alan was doing was, was equally impressive, but it was in a much more sublime manner. But what was so fascinating during that battle is you looked at the stopwatch, I don't know exactly what you mean, because you saw Sever and, and, and the hairs stood up on the back of your neck. You saw Alan and he almost looked slow. You then looked at the times and they were very close. Sometimes Alan was quicker, sometimes Sever was quicker. Yeah, to some degree maybe that came about because the way individual choices in car setups and I think, to some degree, Alan was exceptionally good at that sort of micro 
fine tuning of a car to get to the precise level that he required. And I think Ayrton might have, in some instances, driven through issues just with sheer, you know, big balls and speed. And uh, you use that to try and get a, a, a foot to suppressing Alan basically to, to, to push him down in the team and to be uh, what ha what is important for a, a Formula One driver in the team is to be the driver that the team refer to as the as the standard as the, he's the performance level we respect or look to and I think that's what Senna was trying to do. Fantastic. Another question in fact here. Yes, please. John, I appreciate the discipline. So, how did it compare working with, say, Tom Walkinshaw and Norbert Singer compared with uh, Gordon Murray and uh, John Barnard? Well, Tom wasn't an engineer. Tom was their team principal, and Tom put together the, the Jaguar package. Tom was a very good team boss, and there was nothing spared to, to ensure that the car was a competitive car. And you know, used technology, first carbon fiber uh, Group C car used an engine which was not an ideal engine in terms of its dimensions. It was long, it was tall, it was heavy. But Tony Southgate designed the car and one way or the other, and with the aerodynamics, the car was an exceptionally good race car. Whereas with Norbert Singer, who again was a, he was an engineer uh, more than he would have been a team principal. And I, he maybe had a, I can't quite remember the rule that he had within the Rothmans team. So Norbert would have been much more involved in the engineering and design of the 956s and then the 962s. But the reality, once Jaguar came along with the XJR, was it 89s? No, yeah. the, the, the rigidity of the chassis and the downforce levels that could be generated. And remember, at, at certain circuits, the, there was not a massive difference at lap times between the quickest of the Group C cars and a Formula 1 car. Then they were impressive machines. Okay, but but the question was comparing that to working with a Gordon Murray um, or, or, well, or indeed a John Barnard. Well, Gordon and John were engineers, and uh, so you're working with an engineer. With Tom, you wouldn't have gotten into those discussions. Uh, you'd have been dealing with Tony Southgate or whoever, some other of the engineers in the team. And Norbert Singer, probably uh, not in terms of do we want a bit more rake into the car, do we want a bit more downforce? That would have been done with the engineer on the car that you were driving. And I mean, I drove in 84 with Stefan Belloff in the 1,000 kilometers at Fuji, which we ended up winning. And it was very much the chief engineer in that car that would have, whatever alterations or changes, it wouldn't have necessarily come directly from Norbert Singer. There would have been a base car setup that Singer would have been involved in. But Gordon Murray and John Barnard were definitely on the pit wall engineering both the Brabham or McLaren. A point I was actually going to try and raise earlier because Gordon Murray and John Barnard, the two charismatic designers in Formula One in that period, uh, both well known to have towering egos. And if you have an ego uh, within a team, that can sometimes produce difficulties. Did, did that ever, whether in, at Brabham, where I know Bernie gave Gordon Murray a very free reign, or at McLaren with John Barlow, was that ever an issue? Uh, so I don't think so at Brabham, because primarily it was Gordon who was in charge. Okay, remember, these teams were small teams. The number of personnel involved was relatively maybe 30 or 40 people overall at Brabham, and then McLaren quickly expanded, because that was part of the vision that Ron brought to the team. But 
Yes, there, there were egos, and I would certainly say there was more of that apparent in McLaren uh, once John joined than there would have been at Brabham in the mid 70s, late 70s. I have one more question over here. One more question. Yeah, we've been waiting, so. Enjoyed your uh, overtaking stories. I wondered if you've ever put up the inside of cops. <laughs> well, going down the inside of the cops is not something that you would, I would recommend, not at the speed the current cars are doing. But the thing that I think was notable was when, if you go back to the Spanish Grand Prix, when, so, I'm sorry, Max threw one down the inside and Lewis going into turn one. And Lewis stepped back a little bit to allow Max room to not to get into the corner but to exit the corner and my feeling is that had Max thought about it and in the brief moment he had a brief second he didn't think about it enough he should have conceded at that point the corner to to Lewis because because of the angle Lewis was coming into Copter his exit would have been much earlier and he would run out quite wide and I think the undercut was available to Max to use the, the, the tighter exit line and gain an advantage and sadly he didn't choose to do so and I think that was uh, maybe a part of Max's personality and character I think Lewis is a very I call it today as a feature on one of the websites he's a very savvy race driver he's got so much knowledge and experience and I think another element of that race in particular was there was a pivotal race for not so much for Red Bull but certainly for Mercedes and I believe, and I've never had it confirmed by anybody, but I believe that on the opening lap, or maybe for a number of opening laps, Mercedes were going to provide Lewis with the kind of power he would have had for a qualifying lap. Now, you're not meant to have a qualifying boost, but there are ways you can increase the horsepower. Because at the start, Lewis actually first into Abbey, but Max went round the outside and was half of the racetrack. Then going down Wellington Street, <coughs> Lewis past Max, and on the entry into, into Brooklyn's, Max again dive-bombed him, Lewis gave him room. Coming out of Luffield, Lewis had enough drive off Luffield to be able to put himself into the position. So to me, the, the, the Mercedes-Lewis policy for the race was they had to get ahead of Max as early as possible, ideally on the opening lap, because if they could do so, they could then, I believe, control the race from the front if Max led on the opening lap they knew, Mercedes knew that the speed that Max had in that car would probably enable them to draw out enough of an advantage in the opening lap to mean that Lewis was never going to get a good clean shot at him thereafter so there was a, a, lot of going, a lot of things going on in, I think in the background that's not been admitted to or spoken about but to answer your question to go down the inside Lewis did it with Leclerc but Leclerc had seen earlier in the race what had happened to Max and Mac, Max and, and Lewis, so he allowed more space. But he also accepted that really he had done a great job to lead the Grand Prix, and Lewis was the quicker of the two cars. And if he didn't get him there, he was going to get him somewhere else. So I think that Max should have done better. Both could have done better, but Max certainly I think should have conceded and let Lewis take the advantage, but then use the undercut to get back in front. Ladies and gentlemen, John Watson.
Thank you very much. Thank you.